Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out ce.vcu.health.org slash Cribsiders for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Well, Paul and Stuart, we're back. We've done it. This is the Curbsiders. Uh, wait, 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 hold, hold on, hold on now. Guys, I, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, it's, it's hard, it's hard to break the habit. Of course, this is not the Curbsiders and you are not Paul and Stuart. What was I thinking? <laughs> we have a whole new team. It's like, uh, they've been replaced and it's an alternate universe of MedPeds replacements. Yeah, I'm really excited. Today is the day. Well, not today is the day, but when people are hearing this, today is the day we are announcing to the world that there is now a pediatric version uh, of what we of what we do on the curbsiders called the Cribsiders, which we pretty much had to make just because right. of the name, I think. Exactly. I think that was the, the major impetus was someone had the idea. I think Chris had the idea of the Cribsiders and we we ran with it. And you're absolutely right. So this is our I'm first. I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with the name. I think we give you credit. I think there, there's a famous quote that uh, the most important thing, the world would be a better place if everyone knew who got credit for something. Uh, <laughs> this <it>. is, this, <laughs> it might be a misquote. Uh, this is our first ever episode of the Curbsiders mashed up with the Curbsiders for a whole new MedPeds spin. Uh, we want you to know about the Cribsiders. We're going to start making content. You can check us out on any of your favorite podcast players. Um, but we are joined tonight by our outstanding guest, Dr. Whitney Warren, to discuss cystic fibrosis, a great MedPeach topic. But first, Chris, remind us about the show. We are the pediatric medicine podcast where we interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and some weight-based dosings of fun about core topics in pediatric medicine. And here's our producer, Clara Mao, with the introduction for our guest. We have a fantastic MedPeds conversation with our guest. Dr. Whitney Warren is a pulmonary critical care doctor who works in an academic hospital in Texas, where she is the medical director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Clinic. Her academic interests include advanced lung diseases, interventional pulmonary procedures, and ECMO. She loves teaching and developing the next generation of physicians. In her spare time, she wrangles her 16-month-old tiny human. Dr. Warren teaches us about the diagnosis of CF in children and adults, the management of pulmonary and extrapulmonary complications of cystic fibrosis, and other other new therapies available. So without further ado, let's get to it. <laughs> We're here with Dr. Whitney Warren. We're so excited for you to be on the show. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, and we'd like to do some rapid fire questions just to get you know, get to know you a little better. Uh, can you give us a one liner to describe yourself and let listeners know who you are? Absolutely. I'm a 35-year-old runner, mommy to the cutest tiny human ever, um, a pulmonologist, an intensivist, and a MedPeds wannabe. So you did not do a MedPeds like uh, like Chris and Justin did? I didn't either. So we're, you know, no judgment. <laughs> I certainly wanted to, uh, but uh, career and life circumstances prevented it. So uh, now I'm a part of a subspecialty that is very MedPeds heavy. So I get to dabble in a little bit of both. Yeah, that's great that you found a backdoor way into it. That's, that's way right. better. <laughs> Justin and Chris, question. like, yeah. shaved off a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I added three. <laughs> yeah, I was never good at math. <laughs> okay, so 
I I always like to get I have a huge list of books that I I try to get to. Sometimes I read like 50 pages and I'm like this sucks and I throw it out. But what's your give me your best shot? What should I be reading? <laughs> okay, so yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um and I think I I stand by people should read what they need to read to get them through uh, whatever it is that's hard about being a physician for them. And um, right now, I uh, when I'm not a physician, I'm a mommy. And so Baby Shark is number one on my reading mm. list, uh, followed by Never Touch a Dinosaur. So, <laughs> and, and you know all the hand, I, hand, hand things for the Baby Shark. I do. I can do all the hand motions for Baby Shark. <laughs> it's a classic, classic story. Uh, <laughs> Disappointing ending, but uh... <laughs> they're hungry sharks at the end. I think that's a very inappropriate pediatric recommendation. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it's perfect. So, my question is what is the best advice you ever received as a learner? Uh, you know, I, I had a couple of physicians to, uh, tell me who are attendings listen to your patients and don't give up on people. Um, uh, one attending in specific was like, you should do tobacco cessation every time. And I was like, oh, it never works. You know, people never quit smoking. And he was like, don't give up on your patient. Do it every time. Someday they'll quit and then you'll feel awesome. And I think that applies to a lot of things, not just smoking, but um, just believing in the people that you take care of. Yeah. I think some of the statistics too, especially on tobacco cessation, there's like a surprisingly small fraction of patients are asked about it. Like mm -hmm. it, they do a survey, like, were you asked about this in the past year or told you should stop? And it's like 50% or more say no. Right. Yeah. Don't fact check me on that. Anybody. <laughs> I, just read that. I, I just read that. I can't remember where. Well, you know, well, and there's some old data that the more you bring it up, the more likely it is people are to quit. So yeah. You know, Matt, at my, my version of cash, like, um, up here in the Midwest, we actually have metrics that look at they, and we get data how many times we ask it because we have to do a check mark in our own EMR. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm not yeah. going to say that. I don't know. <laughs> bleep that out. That, uh, we might have to. We might have we'll to bleep, bleep that. <laughs> we'll, we'll get a we'll get a bleep from Lenny Feldman's old episode. That's yeah. That's <laughs> Lenny. Our 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 previous guest that we bleeped did not like it because all his colleagues thought he was swearing a lot, but he was really just saying <laughs> he was really just saying the name of an electronic health record and where I worked. Both of which are not allowed on the show. <laughs> Should we go on to the, these cases Great. now? Let's jump into it. Yeah. Chris, you want to start us off with the first, uh, first oh, case? Oh, okay. Good. All right. Emma is a three-week-old infant you are seeing because her newborn screen came back with an elevated immunoreactive trypsinogen, an IRT, and further molecular testing showed the CFTR mutation. You meet with her anxious parents to inform them that Emma's sweat chloride level is 67 milliequivalents per liter. And, and this confirms the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. I read that really strangely. <laughs> you did a great job. No, I'm good. I think we should just Ready leave it. Let it go. I put you on the spot. I put you on the spot. I... We'll just leave, we'll let it go. <laughs> so I guess the first question is, what? so these parents are wondering, like, they, I'm sure they've heard what cystic fibrosis is. How, what? What is your sort of like... Mm -hmm. Wikipedia layman version uh, explanation of what cystic fibrosis is. Sure. So the first thing I do, you know, in full disclosure, I do, I'm not generally telling people that their baby has cystic fibrosis, but I've told a lot of um, older individuals 
uh, often with parents in the room because they may be at kind of in that adolescent young adult range that they have a new diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. And the very first thing I do is I say, you know what, you're probably only going to remember about 10% of what I'm telling you here. So here's the link for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation website. Go there read it after we've talked and had and you've had some time to absorb because everything is put into layman's terms explained very well um, and it's all good information and good data what i don't want people to do is go home and google because then they'll just be terrified so the cystic fibrosis foundation i always put that out there up front while people are still listening to me <laughs> um and then I kind of tried to move into talking about some of the basics that um, it's a genetic mutation and that genetic mutation results in a protein that isn't formed right and doesn't work right. Normally that protein allows us to help chloride transport. And the reason chloride is important is because it drags water with it and helps us moisten surfaces. When that doesn't happen, a lot of the different parts of your body become gunked up with very thick secretions, and your body just isn't made to handle those thick secretions, and it affects a lot of different organs. It affects the sinus tract, the lungs, the GI tract, reproductive organs, just to name a few, um, and particularly in the lungs, all of that very thick mucus and secretions that builds up because of this lack of water causes you to be able to trap bacteria, other pathogens, and starts to destroy the airway over time because of chronic inflammation. So that's generally where I start. And that usually op opens up a huge basket of questions. So I usually pause, delve into some questions before I do more explaining. I think usually one of the first questions I get questions from, even like friends and family who don't only know like cursory, the thing they know most is you don't live very long. Like they're like, oh, you know, sure. you know, Uncle Bobby, you know, he 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 died in his in his twenties and thirties, you know, twenty years ago. What how yeah. what do you what do you tell them about? Because that's usually probably one of the first things they they ask. Yeah, and it, especially in my patient population, I get asked that a lot because generally when I'm talking to folks uh, and telling them that they have CF, they're already older and their disease might be more advanced um, at diagnosis, and so. Um, I usually tell them, you know, the honest truth of the stats that we have right now. So the average life expectancy for CF right now is in the upper 40s, and which is a huge improvement from, you know, even just a decade ago. But uh, for little kiddos who are being diagnosed with CF right now, that number is going to look way different way different because these kiddos are going to have the opportunity to grow up in the era of CFTR modulators. So CFTR, that's that gene that becomes abnormal, um, that results in that abnormal protein. And because of these new drugs that can kind of fix that protein, some of these kiddos uh, are going to have a much different life expectancy and a much different life with this disease. So although right now, um, you know, the numbers are, are still very sad and it's it's something that we have a lot of work to do. Um, you know, having a life expectancy in the upper 40s is not great. I think that's going to change every year. It's going to be longer and longer and longer as these kiddos start to grow up. One of the uh, things I feel like I've seen younger kids with cystic fibrosis who seem pretty advanced. And then I've seen adults who really are pretty mild symptoms 
and and maybe it's just my um, that's maybe anecdotal, but it seems like there's a pretty wide uh, heterogeneity of the phenotype. Is that true? And is that because of uh, access to medications, or is there a way to assess the severity of saying this child is going to have severe cystic fibrosis growing up? This one will probably have mild symptoms. Yeah. So that's a that's an excellent question. So genotype does predict phenotype to some extent. So there's certain uh, genotypes that are associated with more severe disease. But that being said, you can have two patients who both have a Delta F508 homozygous mutation of their CFTR. That's the most common mutation. And they may have very, very different manifestations of their disease in terms of their severity. Um, Certainly, it's affected by access to care, access to therapies. um, And the CF Foundation has worked really hard to make sure that patients have access to the therapies that they need. Um, But certainly, if you have less resources to get therapies, um, less social support to make sure that those therapies are implemented, then that will affect your, your especially your lung function and, and probably your outcomes long-term. But it's a huge spectrum. You're, you're totally correct. Um, the phenotypic expression is really variable. Along these same lines, there's the different classes of mutations and the, I'm totally a novice at CF. I've, I, I have not seen many patients, mainly it's, I've seen a couple patients in their 30s and 40s or late teens that get admitted to the adult inpatient hospital, like to the inpatient side. But the classes one through three are the ones from what I was reading that per- they present earlier in life, and then the other ones present later in life. Is there? Do most patients fall into the presenting earlier, where they're diagnosed at birth and they have problems throughout childhood? That's what I think of as the classic patient, but I'm not sure if the actual numbers bear that out. And is the prognosis majorly different between the two groups? Well, so, you know, the majority of people nowadays are being diagnosed on newborn screen, especially as newborn screening has become universal. But you have to keep in mind that it wasn't until 2010 that all states (laughs) were doing universal newborn Uh, screening. Yeah. Oh, I see. So as of 2018... um, 83% of uh, kiddos diagnosed under one were caught on a newborn screen, but the total diagnoses of CF in that year, only 63% of them were in that less than one range and only 63% of them were newborn screen, if that makes sense. So we're still diagnosing a lot of older kids and adolescents and adults who uh, were not captured by that initial newborn screen. Do do the people that you capture that are adolescents or young adults, do they tend to have milder disease? Because yeah. I feel like they would have, it would have been picked up if they were getting recurrent infections and bowel problems and all, all the other things that go along with it that we'll talk about. Absolutely. So, you know, if you're diagnosed later in life with CF, then you tend to have milder disease and some of the more rare uh, mutations that are associated with milder phenotypes. Um, You know, I have a patient who was diagnosed in her 60s, and now she has fairly advanced lung disease, but she made it through, you know, her 30s, 40s um, with one or two pneumonia, quote, pneumonias a year, (laughs) Um, but otherwise, like, had had fairly normal childhood and adolescence. So, um, and she has a more rare mutation. For those patients that are diagnosed at a later stage, how are they 
diagnosed. I admit, is there a sweat chloride test for a 62 year old? Yeah. <laughs> or do you mean, oh. do you also mean how are they presenting? Like what is, what is sure. people to think that this person might have CF? Yeah, I think both. I think both. I mean, I, I imagine that it's like these recurrent pneumonias that people are like, maybe we're missing something. Yeah. Maybe not. But I just can't imagine, you know, I feel like the baby, it's like, oh, they taste salty. And it's like, oh, that's cystic fibrosis. But, you know, I, the 62-year-old equivalent, I don't know. It's like, you know, I think. Yeah. We don't advocate for licking our patients. Um, <laughs> That'll be in the show notes. <laughs> um, you know, you can sweat an adult. <laughs> so, so it's diagnosed gener- generally um, with an abnormal sweat chloride. And then we do uh, genetic testing to confirm the mutation because now it really dictates therapy. Um, and also there are some pretty rare diseases that can give you an abnormal sweat chloride, um, and you don't actually have CF, but you may have other lung problems. So that's another reason to, um, complete the genetic testing. But for adults, it's generally the adult who has had refractory uncontrolled asthma or multiple pneumonias or holy cow, someone just figured out that you have horrific bronchiectasis, but nobody knows why. Um, so typically they get some other label for a while, um, or they just struggle for a long time with infections and things like that. And they never get diagnosed, uh, until somebody kind of gets a hold of them and puts two and two together. Now I want to step back because we have, we're probably going to have some listeners who are adult practitioners have been a while since they've done a pediatric rotation in medical school or some early learners. Do you think you can describe some of these uh, diagnostic tests a little more? Like what is a newborn screen and how is a sweat chloride test done? So we have that people have a better understanding of what these, what's involved with these. Yeah. So, you know, the biggest important thing for adult learners that I would say um, with regards to sweat chloride is if you have a patient that you think potentially could have CF, um, you know, they, they have bronchiectasis without a clear underlying reason. They have, um, uh, some other recurrent forms of pulmonary or sinus disease, or maybe they have frequent pancreatitis without a clear reason, um, or, um, you know, male infertility with an absent vas deferens, Uh, that would be on my differential as well. Then a, a sweat chloride should be ordered on those folks. And it should be done by someone who is familiar with doing the test on a fairly regular basis. The CF Foundation actually uh, helps us to track how we do with our sweat chlorides, how accurate we are with our diagnosis, how many people we sweat that that come back negative. And so it really should be done by somebody, you know, in that kind of a capacity. We have a CF nurse that does all of ours and she's amazing at it, um, but it's, it's pretty operator dependent. So my biggest advice would be refer to a center or someone who knows how to do a really accurate sweat. This doesn't involve licking people, does it? You should not lick people <laughs> to diagnose them with CF. <laughs> Especially not during a pandemic. No, no like, God, God is, and then the- yeah, I, I was just, I was just asking. So, like, I, I've, you know, I've never actually seen one, but I've read about it. And so they put gauze on people, and they're given medications to make them sweat. Is that how how it works? Yeah, it will. And so, so our, our nurse has like got it down to a science and she can make anybody sweat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> really? She feeds them really spicy <laughs> or something like that. Some really spicy <laughs> Thai food. <laughs> um, and then the cutoffs that you, that you use, um, there's three ranges. So you can have 
uh, after the sweat chloride, after the sweat is collected, then it's sent to the lab. Um, and then the cutoffs that you use are um, so a negative and indeterminate or intermediate and then a positive. Um, and if you're if you're greater than 60, uh, similar to the kiddo, then that's a positive. If you're in that inde indeterminate or intermediate range, then you may want to send genetic testing, even if you uh, even though you haven't had a positive sweat because there are certain uh, genotypes that are associated with that. Uh, and then generally, if you're negative, you truly are negative and you, and you probably don't need to send genetic testing. Whitney, we've done the, the uh, thick and liquid challenge before on the show. And uh, I really think we should have thought about doing sweat chloride tests on all of us just to go through it, just to see what it's like. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't really think what I was reading about. It, I didn't really yeah. think about how they actually did it, but I want to, I want to see how this happens. <laughs> you now can, I'm very intrigued. You can YouTube it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're we're going to find some YouTube links and we'll include it in the show notes. <laughs> Great. So yeah, let's keep moving. So, you know, cystic fibrosis, a lot of us, uh, you know, we think the lungs are where the money is. It's a, uh, you know, primarily a pulmonary disease. So let's say we're seeing Emma in the clinic regularly over the next few years. What are we looking for as far as pulmonary complications of cystic fibrosis, and how are we regularly assessing, monitoring, and following her pulmonary function? So one of the things that you're looking for is infections. So, you know, if she were to start to have um, respiratory infections, producing more sputum, coughing more, then that would be concerning for pulmonary complications. Um, as kiddos get older, we start to do pulmonary function tests. So when they're older than most kids can do it around five years old or a little bit older, depending on the kiddo. Um, and then we start to track their FEV1 or their forced expiratory volume at one second and their FVC or their forced vital capacity. I mean, typically we monitor both. And you look for any decline in that. And then as soon as they're old enough to start giving sputum samples, we follow their sputum uh, in addition every three months uh, to make sure that they're not growing organisms that could be eradicated or organisms that could be targeted in their next exacerbation. Is it, That seems like a lot of work following sputum samples. Is that something that we've just done or is that something that we know we want, if we identify that someone has MDRO and we treat it, that it's going to improve outcomes? I'm just curious. It sounds. <laughs> so there are some outcomes tied to, um, to what you grow. So uh, there is some benefit to, so the first time you grow Pseudomonas, there is benefit to trying to eradicate it. So that's one reason uh, that we get sputum samples to look for pseudomonas and to eradicate it when we can. So, so we follow sputum um, for that reason. And then other things that uh, patients may grow. So when they grow mycobacterium or, uh, or other uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial organisms, those may need to be targeted, especially if there's been a decline in lung function. Uh, and there's prognostic value to following sputum as well. Um, different bacteria are associated with worse prognosis, um, like the Burkholderia senosopatia complex bacteria are associated with rapid decline in lung function. And so when folks grow that, you know, then, um, you know, it kind it, it tells us more about their overall prognosis and uh, we'll often try to treat that too. Um, 
And then if they have an exacerbation, then you have culture data to know what to target for their exacerbations. So essentially the, the flora, the, the flora, I'm not even going to try to repeat that name you just said, but the flora can be a sign of lungs that are getting sicker and, and progression of the disease itself. Right, right. That, that's true. Yeah. And some of our therapies are based on what you grow. So if you chronically colonize Pseudomonas, and just to backtrack for a second, um, you know, what happens in folks who have cystic fibrosis is they will develop a biofilm. So they have these thick secretions that develop a, a biofilm, often Pseudomonas, Staph aureus, um, some other bacteria and fungi that are fairly common. And then, um, other organisms over time as the lung function declines and there's more lung destruction uh, can be kind of a harbinger of, uh, of progression. And when you first grow pseudomonas, you try to eradicate it. But then if you chronically colonize it, then we know that things like chronic azithromycin uh, may improve your outcomes. Inhaled antibiotics may decrease your risk of exacerbations and hospitalization. So there's different therapies that you can use to target depending on what you grow. I wanted to talk about mucus clearance. I don't know, Chris and Justin, if you guys know about much about that, but I was reading that this can take like four hours, like it, it's, a, it's a huge time yeah. suck for, for patients and their families. Can you talk about that a little bit? Do you prepare people for that? Oh yeah. I, 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 you know, when I am counseling people, I tell them that they're gaining a new part-time to full-time job in addition to whatever else it is that they do. Most of uh, our patients in the adult world do two to three times a day of an airway clearance regimen, and it's usually uh, nebulized albuterol followed by uh, nebulized hypertonic saline, followed by uh, some sort of percussion, so like um, aerobica, or they'll do vest, something to mechanically help clear secretions, and then once a day, at least, most will do pulmozyme uh, to help thin those secretions. And then most patients, especially adults, are chronically colonized with pseudomonas. And so they'll do uh, inhaled antibiotics on top of all of that at the very end. So twice a day or three times a day, they're doing some form of inhaled antibiotics. It's a, it's a big regimen. And if you're trying to have a job, go to school, have a normal life, it's, it's pretty difficult. Is there a justification for that order? I remember vaguely like the albuterol opens up the airway to get the hypertonic saline in. Is that, is that true? Is that evidence-based? Is that? Well, if you've ever given hypertonic without albuterol, you'll see the evidence uh, yourself. It causes bronchoconstriction. Right. <laughs> so you can you can make somebody significantly wheeze with hyper, especially if they already have kind of hyperreactive airways. Hypertonic um, can just cause bronchoconstriction. So that's the purpose of doing the albuterol first. And then the hypertonic hydrates the airways um, and also stimulates a nice robust cough to help with airway clearance. Now, is is there good evidence about how good the vest therapy is and how that those types of vibrations help with clearing airway? There's been a lot of research that has compared the different types of mechanical airway clearance. So they've compared IPV with aerobica, with vest, um, with percussion, you know, manual percussion, like clapping on the back and that sort of thing. And um, 
there's not ever been a lot of great data that one is better than the other. The nice thing about the vest is that you can do other things with your hands while it's on. And now that uh, there's a battery pack vest that has kind of just come out in the recent years, I had a couple of patients um, in my fellowship training that would commute wearing their vest. So they had a portable nebulizer um, and they would neb and then vest as they commuted. So it was easier for them than doing something handheld because they were driving. (laughs) We got to get these self-driving cars, guys. I don't know. I don't, I don't don't want to take the podcast (laughs) off, but I'm really excited about self-driving cars, especially since my oldest kid is is about eight years away from driving, you know, let's can't come soon enough. Should I start shouting out to manufacturers so you can get some more bleeps in the episode? <laughs> if Tesla, if Tesla wants to get sponsored, I guess we can. Elon, our, come on. Yeah, our I know you're listening. You know all about ventilators now, too. <laughs> One more thing about this, you know, I uh, that I think as far as going along with daily maintenance, um, whenever we have a kid that's admitted to the hospital, his diet, the cystic fibrosis diet, is always essentially double portions. Yeah. And we're encouraging them to get cheeseburgers and milkshakes. What's the story behind the the double portions for cystic fibrosis? There's a couple of stories there. So the first is, especially as the lung disease advances, the patient has a much higher metabolic demand. So just breathing is a lot more work for uh, that patient than for someone without cystic fibrosis. So they burn a lot of calories just breathing. So they need a lot higher calories um, in that situation, especially in advanced disease. And then absorption is always an issue. Um, We have our folks take uh, enzymes to help with the pancreatic exocrine insufficiency that we see with cystic fibrosis, um, but absorption is all, always an issue that we fight. And so um, we're kind of fighting two battles, higher caloric demand and lower overall absorption. And so we double portion all of our adult patients as well that are pancreatic insufficient, especially. And is there a relationship between BMI and lung function? Is that... There is. Yeah, there is. So low BMI um, or dropping BMI is associated with decline in lung function. And some of that is because as your lung function declines, that metabolic demand increases. Um, You see the same thing, you know, the adult, another adult corollary is like end stage COPD. When you see people who have super advanced lung disease, they tend to get very, very thin. So as it, you work really hard to breathe, that your BMI drops just because you can't calorically keep up with it. So it's, it's another version of the pulmonary cachexia syndrome that people get with COPD. It's like a hypermetabolic state or a catabolic state. and Exactly. Both. Are you working with nutritionists? Are these are we just telling these kids to eat cheeseburgers and bacon and can they can they get a vegetable in there? You know, like <laughs> is there or does it not matter? You're just like you need calories. So you're on like the uh US swim team diet, eight thousand, ten thousand calories a day. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, we we're super lucky in the way that um the CF providers that have come before me have sort of structured and recommended that CF be run. And we run CF as a multidisciplinary team. And our team has a nutritionist that works with us and comes to every clinic and sees pretty much every one of our patients every time and tracks their BMI 
really closely, tracks their vitamin levels really closely because we have a lot of issues with vitamin absorption, especially fat-soluble vitamins. Um, and she does encourage them to have high caloric intake, but she tries to make it sort of the the right caloric intake. You know, she still scolds them if all they do is pound, you know, sugary sodas. So <laughs> That's encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> but we try hard not to restrict, you know, to put hard restrictions on foods. What's what's next here, Chris? Do you want to go to the next part of the case? Yeah, we can do the next part of the case. So Emma is now a 23-year-old college student and presents with a mild cold that began a couple days ago during finals week at school. During the interview, Emma reports having a productive cough, shortness of breath on exertion, and increased fatigue. So what should we do for Emma's cold? And how do we treat CF flare or pulmonary exacerbations? Colds can be tricky in CF because sometimes it's just a cold. Sometimes you just need some supportive care. Um, But a lot of times it doesn't take much to push a CF patient over the edge, allow that biofilm to really explode in their lungs, and then put them into a full-blown CF exacerbation where basically um, their immune system in their lungs just can't handle the bacterial volume. Um, So generally, we treat CF exacerbations with a combination of increasing airway clearance aggressively and then also starting either oral or IV antibiotics, depending on what they're sensitive to. And so if if Emma has a cold and let's say has poor sensitivities, um, we've been doing sputum cultures and she has a lot of resistance, does that warrant admission for IV antibiotics, even if she's doing okay otherwise? Especially if she's having a drop in her FEV1 or her FVC, then it generally does warrant admission for IV antibiotics. So you generally try to treat based on like what is Emma's baddest bug, you know, try to cover her organisms that she's recently grown. And if she really has organisms that are only sensitive to IV antibiotics, and then you would admit her to get her started. There's a lot of debate in the CF community about whether or not, you know, people could then go home on those IV antibiotics after they've completed like a 10-day course, uh, or sorry, a five-day course, you know, because our general courses are are 10 to 14 days, not based on great literature, but based on what's been done, practice patterns. Now, what what is the difference? You know, I know we have inhaled antibiotics and IV antibiotics. Like, what's the difference? And why are some inhaled? Why aren't they all inhaled? Like, I, I don't really under... I mean, I, I think I'm sure I was told this at one point, but I can't really remember. Great question. The inhaled antibiotics we generally use for chronic suppressive therapy, especially in the setting of chronic colonization with pseudomonas. So tobramycin, um, astreanam, and colistin are the three most commonly used. Um, and those will generally work for chronic suppressive therapy, but when people are really having an exacerbation, they generally will need an oral or IV antibiotic to truly suppress the the bacteria and kind of allow them to go back to whatever is their normal colony forming units that they're able to tolerate and that their immune system is kind of able to regulate. Are they usually multi-drug regimens when you're and, and is it all just based on prior culture data? If you like, if you didn't have culture data, someone's, I don't know, they get admitted to your hospital, they're out of state for some reason. You just do your best, put them on IVS, tree and M and. <laughs> I think you would, uh, if I had somebody coming in, you know, a lot of CF patients are super savvy. Um, and when I've admitted CF patients who, 
I don't have any culture data on them. I'll often ask them, what do you grow? Oh, this is a and, good point. And if they, if, and if they're like, oh yeah, I grow MRSA and Pseudomonas and they tell me my Pseudomonas is resistant to everything, then that helps you. Or if they're, or if they say, oh, I grow Pseudomonas and I usually get treated with oral antibiotics, then you kind of know they probably have a pretty sensitive strain of Pseudomonas. And I would, I would judge it, you know, based on that. Most of the time, by the time they get to me and they're adults, they kind of, they know what they grow. Um, otherwise I would just pick, um, you know, your most likely bad actors. So Pseudomonas and MRSA are our biggest problems. I would double cover for Pseudomonas and I would cover for MRSA until I got a sputum culture. So, so for those multi-resistant bugs, like a Pseudomonas that they tell you it's resistant to everything, what, what do you do? You just give them what you can and then pray. I mean, like, I mean, and, and this is an issue I know, like not just in the CR patients because we have a lot of resistance out there. Yeah. So actually there's, um, there's been a couple of studies that have looked at this. So in folks who have, um, pseudomonas that's just resistant to everything. If you pick two fairly good anti-pseudomonal drugs, so like an aminoglycoside and something else that generally has fairly good uh, pseudomonal coverage, so like um, uh, cefepime uh, or, or, or if they're very, very ill, maybe even a carbapenem, then even though their uh, lab data would suggest that they're not sensitive at all, individuals still tend to get better from that CF exacerbation with those antibiotics. And there's a couple of proposed theories, and these are just theories, so nobody uh, hold my feet to the fire on this. And they're not my <laughs> theories. <laughs> um, they're theories put out by people way smarter than me. Um, but some of the proposed theory is that sometimes your in vivo sensitivity may be a little different than your in vitro. Um, and also that those antibiotics may just allow enough suppression of the bacterial load that the immune system can kind of take over and the patient can get through the exacerbation. So to recap the exacerbation stuff, because I know we still have a lot of stu- things left, you're, they're going to be doing all their 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 full-time or part-time job of mucus clearance in the hospital now. The main difference is they're just going to be getting intravenous antibiotics. And in my experience, these patients often don't look that sick. Like they're often like on laptops right. and they're, you know, listening to music, talking on the phone. Like they, they tend to be, yeah. to look at them in some ways healthy. It's a little hard to know, but it sounds like you said maybe five days you can keep them and then potentially send them home with it, but that's controversial. So What's your end? What is a typical endpoint for a patient in the hospital? So generally, we're doing spiro um, about halfway through uh, their antibiotic course and making sure that their spiro is starting to recover. So that's one endpoint. There's a couple of trials going on right now trying to determine what are those endpoints and how long should we be doing antibiotics. A few studies have compared doing the whole course at home versus partial courses. Uh, at home versus the whole course in the hospital. And in general, folks do better in the hospital. And we think that's probably mostly because of airway clearance. When we have folks in the hospital, we have them doing airway clearance four times a day. And that's a big lift at home. To Matt's point, there's still a lot a lot of other complications and things that we, we want to talk about and touch base on. In keeping up with Emma, let's say now she's, she's 35 years old. She finishes college. She got a history PhD. Um, and she's coming into clinic for an annual checkup. Uh, she has a two-hour plasma glucose that is 208 or elevated. 
what are some things that we're checking for? Why'd we do an, an oral plasmid glucose? What are some of the extra pulmonary complications of CF? When do they typically present? And are patients on medications or other maintenance therapies to try to prevent these extra pulmonary complications? Yeah, so there's a lot of extra pulmonary complications. And especially, I mean, they can present as early as infancy, especially some of the malabsorption. That's why you may see failure to thrive as the presenting symptom in an infant. Um, but as they get older, especially adolescence and into adulthood, you start to see a lot more diabetes. You start to see a lot more bone disease. Um, you may see more liver disease, although that can be uh, in childhood and infancy as well. Certainly sinus disease, fertility issues, pancreatic issues, pancreatitis, endocrine and exocrine insufficiency. The reason we do oral glucose tolerance tests is because CF patients have uh, more rapid red blood cell turnover. Um, from We think uh, some of that is tied into uh, changes in metabolism. And so hemoglobin A1c tends to underestimate their actual blood sugars or blood glucose. So that's why we do oral glucose tolerance testing. So what what is the difference between like a CF-related diabetes with like the diabetes we see in, in our adults, like mostly type 2 and or the type ones that we see in our, our children? CF, I, you know, I've heard a couple of endocrinologists who are, are very experienced with CF talk about how it's, it's some horrible combination of type 1 and 2. <laughs> um, you have an absolute insulin deficiency, but then you also see some insulin resistance in addition. So they are in a chronic pro-inflammatory state, so they typically will have some insulin resistance. And then um, because they can also have um, some issues with absorption, gastric emptying, um, GI transit, they can get insulin, uh, food bolus mismatch and have really difficult to control brittle diabetes with like very high blood sugars and then very low when they get kind of like an insulin mismatch. Every CF patient who has diabetes benefits from seeing an endocrinologist familiar with CF if it's available. And oral meds are not, are there a no go, right? That's another controversy. <laughs> so um, uh, recently at the CF conference, there was some really good presentations on um, citagliptin and metformin and maybe using early in disease, but, uh, um, but there's probably more to come on that. In general, insulin is what's recommended. The CF Foundation guidelines recommend Okay. Insulin. And the newer, you're not going to want to slow gastric emptying with like a GLP-1, I guess. Uh, and if they're totally insulin deficient, the SGLT2 is probably <laughs> not, not going to be. Yeah, yeah. You definitely don't want to do anything to slow GI transit because we already have issues with that in CF. Um, so, so you probably want to avoid those. Going back to the difference in phenotypes, are the extrapulmonary, is the severity of disease often in line with pulmonary disease? Is the people that have really bad CF-related diabetes, do they also have really bad lung function? Or can some people just have bad luck where their cystic fibrosis affects their GI tract and, and or their endocrine system? Do they go in parallel or, or not? There certainly are some genotypes that are associated with just broad spectrum, severe phenotypic expression. Um, but there are also more rare mutations that are just associated with like very severe pancreatitis. Hmm. Um, you know, so kind of a different manifestation or a very severe sinusitis with very mild lung disease. Hmm. 
So one of the issues that comes up with a lot of these uh, pediatric diseases that go into adulthood is some of the challenges that go with transition. Um, and so when you have an adolescent or a young adult in your clinic, how do you talk to them about uh, exercise or going to the gym or drinking or, or what their reproductive consequences are of cystic fibrosis? And, and maybe even if you talk about when you bring them up, how you bring them up, how, some experience of what that's yeah, like. Absolutely. I think fortunately, um, there's some really great programs that start that pretty young for CF, realizing that these kids are going to grow up to be adults with a pretty serious chronic medical condition that they're going to have to take control of. So CF Rise is actually a program for transitioning from pediatric to adult medicine and helping kids to start um, learning their care regimens and learning um, what all it is that their parents are doing for them, and then gradually transitioning to take over their care so that by the time they are to me, they've had years and years of taking over their care. And so the the nice thing with the implementation of CFRIs is that when they get to me, even if they're like 18 or 19, they're pretty used to talking about their medical condition like an adult. Um, and it's not across the board, but a lot of them are pretty used to having good, frank discussions about their own medical care. Um, so generally, I don't start talking about sex on the first visit. Um, but after we, you know, after we've gotten to know each other um, and have had maybe a visit or two, then then generally I'll bring up like, oh, you know, uh, you know, now that you're in the adult clinic, things that we talk about in the adult clinic are exercise, alcohol use sex. Why don't you, why don't we start? Well, you pick which one you want to start with and we'll start talking about it and make sure that uh, you don't have any questions and make sure that you understand everything about how your disease affects those things. And they're, you know, most of my patients are incredibly open to that um, because they've, they've had such a long time of already being sort of the managers of their care. And it's not universal, but CFRIS has really, I think, set kids up to be successful in those discussions, getting them comfortable having them. It's always tricky when you're uh, talking about sex because I think there's, uh, especially uh, my male CF patients are like, well, I can't get anybody pregnant, but I often sort of joke with them, but yes, you can still get an STD. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, it, and and then it, that helps me sort of transition to more serious conversations of like, yeah, you know, 97% of males with CF don't have a vas deferens. Um, but in the future, you should think about that sperm harvesting is still a possibility. So, you know, keeping yourself healthy if you want that possibility in the future is super important. Um, and you can still uh, successfully have your own biological children if that's what you want. Because some of them have never heard that, that like, oh, that that's something that I could do. That could be one of my goals if, if that's what they want. And for women, is pregnancy particularly dangerous? I I'm, I have no no knowledge of this. I I did not read about it beforehand. <laughs> yeah, well, so it sort of depends on the patient's lung function. So, um, the a lot of 
uh, women with CF can get pregnant. It often just takes longer. So the, cervi the cervical mucus is really thick and that can make it harder to get pregnant. Um, but usually within a year of trying, about 80-ish, sometimes a little bit higher percent of uh, women with CF will be able to get pregnant. We generally recommend uh, patients with an FBV1 less than 60% not get pregnant because they tend to have worse outcomes for themselves and then also for the baby, um, growth restriction, um, fetal loss, um, you know, uh, a lot of different problems that come along when your lung function is very low. Now, now with CF, CF patients who want to pursue having children, do you do you feel they have enough information to make those decisions on their own? Would you ever refer them to like a genetic counselor to discuss these types of things? Um, what's your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So whenever, you know, I, I try to have that conversation pretty early with uh, patients because it can have, you know, especially if your lung function is very low, it can have uh, a lot of consequences for, for a woman. And so I you know, as a part of their medication list, often I'll be like, oh, are you on oral contraception, uh, contraceptive if you're sexually active? And then, well, why don't we talk about this for a second? It's kind of a nice segue um, just to make sure people are super aware uh, of the fact that they can <laughs> get pregnant and, and and sort of what some of the outcomes are associated with that. But I always always offer a referral to a genetic counselor if people want to get pregnant, because I think that's a really important conversation to have. And the geneticists are the, are really the best setup to have those conversations. All right. Can Emma have a beer? Well, <laughs> well, She's 35. You know, I, uh, I'm <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, so again, I, I, I try super hard not to have uh, a lot of hard nose with my patients. Um, it's a team. We come to joint decisions, you know, joint decision making. It's not like Dr. Warren's way or the highway. Um, and so what I tell people is you, you got to be careful. Excessive alcohol can be a little more dangerous in CF. You are in general higher risk for liver disease you're higher risk for pancreatitis and you're higher risk for um, diabetes and loss of bone density. And all of those things can get a lot worse if you have really heavy alcohol consumption. And so I definitely discourage heavy alcohol consumption, but I also realize that uh, I can't, you know, my, I can't just lock up my CF patients and tell them not to have a life and live their life. So uh, we try to encourage moderation. <laughs> <laughs> and caution <laughs> what if what if she wants to do either weight training or like training for a 5k or 10k do you encourage physical physical fitness for the, your patients oh yeah yes absolutely we we are the biggest cheerleaders of exercise in fact we uh, try to get people when they're admitted if they're well enough to go to the hospital gym and work out or at least walk the halls, or we'll bring in, we have some cycles that can be um, sterilized and encourage them to cycle in their room. Exercise is amazing for airway clearance. Um, and so we really encourage that. And then uh, weight training is fantastic because we have a lot of issues with bone density in CF. 
uh, because of malabsorption. And so weight training is fantastic for improving bone density. So now as, as Emma's getting older and we're getting newer, uh, newer therapies that are out there, what are some of the latest treatments for CF and, and where do we see uh, the, the treatments of CF coming in the future? The CFTR modulators are the latest treatments. So they work in a number of ways. And th this is probably what I'm most excited about because the CFTR modulators are changing the face of CF. They are changing the disease. Basically, they work in a number of ways to change the way the protein folds or keep the protein at the cell surface longer or keep the protein open longer so that more chloride can go through. Some of the older ones are approved down to six months. Some of the newer ones um, that are the most efficacious, you have to be 12 or older to take them. Um, but we think eventually those will be approved down to six months as well. And I just cannot imagine how great it will be when, you know, every six month old who has um, uh, a Delta F508, at least one copy or the or other mutations um, that are appropriate can start on these drugs. And then by the time they see me, they have much better lung function, much more preserved, much fewer exacerbations. My dream is that someday all of my CF patients will look at me and say, I'm going to outlive you, Warren. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that I, that I don't have to be, you know, looking at young people that, that wouldn't be able to say that. Um, and the, the modulators are really making that happen. 90% of CF mutations are now covered by a CFTR modulator. And that's huge. But for the 10% of patients, those patients who have uh, missense mutations, uh, the modulators don't work for them. And so that's where we really need genetic therapies um, to, to intervene. You know, things like CRISPR, um, the CF Foundation is, is heavily funding uh, different genetic gene therapies to try to advance progress for those folks because really right now there's not a lot of options for them in terms of more definitive treatment so what these newer cf um the cftr modulator therapies like are they usually covered by insurance especially for these patients who are diagnosed with cf or are they are, is there still like a constant fight since these are new new, new therapies it it's tough so um a lot of the insurance companies are covering these now some of them come with hefty co-pays depending on what type of insurance you have. The CF Foundation um, and then uh, some of the phar pharmaceutical companies that are making these have very good patient programs. And then there's a number of foundations and grant programs that patients can apply for to help cover co-pays if they are insured. Um, very, very difficult to get if you're not insured. The newest modulator um, per year is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. One of these patients ever thought about, is lung transplant ever a thing? Is it is it considered? You know, we talk about referring for lung transplant if somebody is having a rapid decline. Once their FEV1 is um, in the 30 to 40% range, we, we talk about transplant. There's a couple of other uh, prognostic features that we look for that make us refer. The biggest thing that I could sort of put out there is early referral is super important. No transplant center will ever say you referred this person too early. They will just say thank you. You know, if they're if they're really not ready for a transplant, they'll follow them annually. Um, but 
late referral is so much worse than an early referral. So getting these people to a transplant center, especially if they have advanced disease, super important. Any other therapies that we are seeing on the horizon? And what are your, um, what's your prognostication on how CF patients are going to fare in the future? I think with the huge strides that have been made with modulator therapies and then, you know, hopefully some of the gene therapies that are on the horizon, my biggest hope is that, well, first off, that CF is cured completely. That would be fantastic. I would love to be out of a job completely. (laughs) That is my real dream, to be out of a job. but, but also to see this transition from, uh, you know, a disease that takes people very young, uh, as I get older and older, upper 40s looks pretty young <laughs> to me right now. Um, but seeing this go from a, a disease that people don't die from, they live with, um, and then we can manage it, it more like some of the other chronic diseases that we see. Um, that, that's what I see, you know, for the future of CF, hopefully a cure, but at least getting it to more of a manageable chronic disease. I think, I think you're right, Whitney. They're doing amazing things these days with genetics and you said CRISPR, some other words like that. It's, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be fine. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and we'll yeah. find something else for you to do. You know, <laughs> people are yeah. e-volley, like, you know, vape, vaping associated lung injury. That's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Winnie, are there any main takeaway points that you want to make sure our listeners uh, gain from this episode? Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing is uh, you're never going to diagnose CF unless you think about it. So if you have a patient that is having recurrent sinopulmonary disease and you haven't got a good reason, then think about CF, send them for a sweat chloride. Um, the earlier you diagnose it and start treating it, the better they're going to do. If you have a patient with CF that has advanced lung disease, refer them early for a transplant. The, you know, those are probably the, the two biggest takeaway. Get them to a center um, so that they can be cared for appropriately. Before we let you go, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, can I plug the CF Foundation? I was going to ask because you brought it up multiple <laughs> times. And I was, I was going to ask, like, what is the CF Foundation? It sounds amazing. <laughs> tell us, tell us. The CF Foundation is an amazing nonprofit organization um, that contributes to the creation of the CF guidelines. They put on a fantastic conference every year. Um, They sponsor uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably even more in research towards um, curing CF and improving the lives of patients with CF. It's an incredible foundation. If anyone is independently wealthy, please (laughs) donate to the CF Foundation. Um, It's an organization that really takes every dollar and does a lot of good with it. Thank you. Elon, if you're listening, just throw him some money. (laughs) Yeah. CF Foundation, Elon. Astronauts up up in the space. Now we just got to work on CF. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, this was awesome, Whitney. This was super, this was amazing. I learned a lot. I Chris learned definitely everything. learned a lot. And I think uh, just over, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think this will be really good. This has been another episode of the Cripsiders. It's for the kids. Love that. Get our show notes and sign up for our mailing list called Knowledge Food Formula Feeds. Yummy. At thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. 
So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecrypsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Clara Mao. Thank you guys for tuning in. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Clara Mao. And this has been Chris the Chi Man Chu. Thank you and good night. You've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by the BCU Health Continuing Education. BCU Health is jointly accredited by the ACCME, ACPE, and ANCC to provide continuing education for the entire healthcare team. Check us out at ce.bcuhealth.org slash cribsiders for more information and to claim credit after listening to this episode.